Supper 2021, a series of conversations with culinary leaders, drink specialists and hospitality professionals in the world of F&B. Hello and welcome to the first Supper podcast of 2021. I am Hilary Rand, consulting editor of Supper magazine. Supper is a quarterly publication from the people behind the leading international hotel design magazine, Sleeper, covering the global hotel food and beverage sector. Supper explores how food and beverage concepts and brands are developed and how products, produce, and personalities interact to deliver a coherent guest experience. Today, I am speaking with a Chef Ray Garcia, who is the owner of Broken Spanish in Los Angeles. And we will be speaking about Ray's culinary journey uh, him closing uh, the flagship restaurant during the pandemic and his recent and ongoing collaboration with Neue House Hollywood. Now, a few words be- about Neue House. Neue House is a private work and social space for creators, innovators, and thought leaders to gather and to connect. With iconic buildings, timeless design, thought-provoking cultural experiences, and elevated hospitality, Neue House has reimagined the ideal environment for creative potential and progress. And today, uh, Chef is joining us from Neue House Hollywood, um, which is actually one of Hollywood's most celebrated buildings. It occupies the original CBS studios, the world's first structure built intentionally for broadcast. So uh, without further ado, uh, thank you so much, uh, Ray, for, for joining us today and welcome to the first uh, podcast of Supper. Hi, thank you for, thank you for having me. Joining us from uh, sunny LA. So um, is, is it sunny outside? Because I, I only see a, a dark room there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, our, our reputation is true. It is, it is yet sunny again today. Well, great. Uh, we all need a bit more sunshine in our lives these days, I feel like. And, and before uh, we talk about your uh, concept, Broken Spanish, and, and also your collaboration with, uh, with Neue House Hollywood, I kind of want to start um, uh, from the beginning. So uh, tell me a bit about your, how you got to be a chef, because it wasn't really a straightforward process, was it? Sure. Yeah. My, my path to becoming a chef was, was not very straightforward. You know, it's not like some who, you know, grew up and they knew that's what they wanted to do, what they wanted to become. And my parents didn't have a, a restaurant where I was washing dishes, you know, so there was not a lot of exposure to the restaurant world or restaurant and chef life, um, growing up apart from just eating, eating in restaurants, you know, occasionally. So it really wasn't until I was in college that I kind of made that transition. Um, I had gone to the university and my, my goal was actually to go to law school after, um, I, I received my, my bachelor's degree and I wanted to, um, go into the FBI of all, of all, um, professions, you know, that was kind of my, my career goal and, you know, very, very, very ambitious and very driven. And, you know, so nothing was sort of taking me off of that mark except for my need to pay my bills. Um, and when you're going through college, you know, a restaurant is a very, um, good place to, to do that because, you know, it's, it, it's flexible, it's part-time there's, there's cash. Um, you know, and there's not a lot of training, you know, you need to, to get into sort of an entry level position. So, um, that was 27 years ago. And I started off as a, a, a busser. Um, so somebody who is in essence, just cleaning up tables, wiping up after guests, setting tables. 
um, handing out chips and salsa to people because it was a, a Mexican restaurant at the time that had chips and salsa. Um, and it really was just in the front of the house where I started and to, to pay the bills. When I checked into my, my dorm room, my, my first day at college, my roommate was actually came from a, a food background. So he was a Japanese American and his parents had a, a sushi bar and he had been working in that sushi bar since, you know, he was probably 10, 12 years old. So, so he had the opposite experience. So sort of food was his life. You know, up until that point, you know, anything that I had for the most part was cooked by my, my mother or grandmother. And I didn't really know or have much experience outside of, of eating, you know, Mexican food really, or, or derivatives there, thereof. Um, you know, and then in the neighborhood, obviously there was other smaller kind of like chain type restaurants or mom and pop restaurants, but nothing that it was exposing me to, to other foods or cuisines until I met him. Um, and, and not only did he open me up to my, you know, not only did he open my mind up to sushi and, and, and everything else that I hadn't had, but just together we, we started exploring, um, you know, dining and going out and, and eating at high end, you know. Uh, French restaurants, Italian restaurants, you know, whatever there was throughout the city, we were, we were eating it. Uh, and then that curiosity just sort of grew. So as I was going through my, my, my bachelor's, you know, program, um, and there was a point where I had to move out of the, out of the dorms and start cooking for myself. And I realized I had nothing, you know, I, I had, I had, I had no skills to, to do that with. And so I would do, you know, the, the usual, I mean, some boiled ramen, and then that got old, and you know, cook some dried pasta, and that got old, and then I would mix it up and throw in a can of tuna or something. All these odd concoctions, but nothing was really, you know, satisfying. You know, my 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 body or my creativity. Um, and you know, on the flip side, my my roommate Brandon, he was he was cooking, you know, out of you know Larousse and all these old cookbooks, and he was creating these amazing uh, meals and he was, he was braising and deglazing and, and, and all of these things that I had no idea. But when I tasted, I was like, wow, that is, that is incredible. So I think, you know, the, the curiosity and competitive side of me both said, you know, I can do, I can do better than this. I have to start making some, some good food. And I, I literally picked up, there was a series called, uh, cooking for dummies or the four dummies series back then. And there was a cooking for dummies and it literally started with, you know, what a knife looked like, what a pot looked like, how to boil water, fabricate a chicken. Um, and that's where I really started the journey of cooking and started cooking for myself, um, cooking for family, cooking for friends. And then after I, I, I finished up at, uh, at UCLA at the university, I, I said, well, you know what, I think I'm going to take a, a pause and just really see if, if what I want to do is go to to law school, uh, because I had spent some time interning in in Washington uh, D.C. and so many people were, were were against it, and they said, "Oh, don't don't do this. You don't want a life like ours. Don't go to law school. Don't don't become what what, what we are." Enough to the point where at least I paused, and 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 in that pause, I started taking some actual professional um, cooking lessons. And so I was in a, a more structured program for about a, a year or so, um, still never with the intention to become a chef. I was making you know, great money part-time as a, as a server. Um, I had the flexibility and I still had the ambitions of, of going back and, and doing law school. 
going from cooking for uh, for dummies to to the kitchens of the peninsula Beverly Hills. I mean, that's a pretty pretty big step. Uh, tell me a bit about that that experience. Sure, sure. So um, it just so happened that one of the people that I was working with um, as a as a server. He knew I was finishing up with my my culinary school um, education and, or the formal classroom portion of it. And he said, I know you have a, an internship or sort of like an apprenticeship coming up at the end of your, um, your, your term. Do you want to, you know, I have a friend at the peninsula. He's a chef de cuisine. You know, I could introduce you. I said, sure. I, I wasn't thinking about, you know, taking that big of a, of a step, but you know, as somebody who likes a a challenge, I said I would love to give it a, a shot. I, I kind of looked it up. I don't think we could Google back then, but I, I figured out, you know, I, I don't know how you how you research or reference, but I, I found some information on the peninsula and I said, Oh, this is a this is a big this is a big deal. I should probably not mess this up. Um, and so I I took the opportunity and I remember um, I went, it was one of those stories where I had to go over and over and over again, because I started emailing the, uh, the executive chef and I couldn't get a response from him. And I got emailed again and again, and I finally was able to get a meeting with him. And he, you know, he sort of, you know, blew me off. He's like, Oh, you're a college kid. You know, you're not going to last. I give you, you know, six weeks, you'll be out of here. This is too rough for you. And you know, seven years later, um, I left uh, running day-to-day operations of of the kitchen. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And and since at supper we focus a lot on um, the hotel uh, food and beverage, and and you had another uh, great experience at the Fig uh, in Santa Monica, which is at the Fairmont Miramar. And um, there you spent also, uh, I think, quite a considerable amount of time. And and if you could um, also tell me a bit about uh, working in a hotel restaurant where there's also, uh, I guess, more managerial duties than there is just being on the uh, in the kitchen and 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 working those those hours. So how did you sort of find that? balance. Sure. I mean, it was an interesting transition for, for me, um, because the, the peninsula hotel in, in Beverly Hills is, is five star five diamond, you know, Uber luxury. Um, and the, the expectations from the guests are, are very high. Um, and the expectations put on the, the staff are, are incredibly high. Um, you know, and so it was, it was a, a, rough and tough environment to, you know, have as your, your first job, uh, or first, I guess, professional job, but it also set the pace and set the tone for myself and, and what I expect of, of myself and others from, a from a quality standpoint, from a sense of urgency standpoint to approach to, you know, guest satisfaction. And so, you know, when the opportunity came to, to transition, there was a part of me who was like, and no offense to the Fairmont brand, but I was like, oh, why am I going to leave here and you know and go somewhere where else? I'm at the I'm at the top here. There there's no place to to go. Um, and then I realized that yes, while the hotel might have been you know in that position, you know I had to look for my own personal growth. And, and if you're in a position where the the hotel or whatever institution you're in is is very well established, and there's not a lot of opportunity for you to to change something. You know, if I removed one of the signature dishes that had been there for 15 or 16 years, I knew that that wasn't gonna that wasn't gonna fly uh, on on so many levels. So I saw this as my opportunity to transition with about four other people from the the Peninsula Group 
to take over the Fairmont in Santa Monica. And it was, it was that opportunity to, you know, continue to grow and develop and express myself personally that really, um, drove my decision to transition. And when I did, I was, you know, I think that there's the, guess what people look at is people looked at fig and that was sort of the the fishbowl that everyone was looking into, um, to see, you know, me as a creative, but the reality is that I was also operating, um, seven other outlets within the hotel, um, as the executive chef. And then also, you know, towards the end, the executive chef and food and beverage director. So I think operating in hotels, while there are a lot of, of challenges that freestanding restaurants don't um, face um, and, and the clientele and the guests are, are, are quite different, there's just a lot more opportunity to express myself. I, I would always say I don't have to put all my bad ideas in one restaurant. You know, I can have them sort of scattered over uh, acres, of, acres of land. And, and now with the experience of the peninsula and, and the fig, uh, let's talk a bit about what sort of a culinary style had you developed before we move on to, to broken Spanish? Uh, who were you as a chef by then? What fascinated you and, and what, what was, what was driving you? Sure. So, so my cooking style, you know, when I started, it was really very classic or traditional. So all of the, all of the dishes, all of the techniques I was learning were, were very much Eurocentric. Um, and what was most of what was happening in town, the higher end restaurants were, with rare exception, kind of French cuisine. Um, and then there was the, you know, a second sort of subset, subset of California cooking, which was really just a derivative of, of European cooking, some Asian influences as well. Um, and so I just became very good at what was being taught to me, like reading the lesson, doing my homework, studying, memorizing recipes. And I became very proficient. But after a while, I think with, with a lot of things, you know, like if you're a musician, you know, at some point, probably paying, playing someone else's songs, you know, you, you, you were, you think about, okay, well, what can I take from that and start writing my, my own music or playing my own songs? And that was sort of my thought, uh, even before Broken Spanish. And when I transitioned to, to Fig is, like, okay, how can I start expressing my my own style how do i take the the tricks the tips the tools the connections the relationships that i have with with farmers and and you know every other supplier and have them start i guess creating my own food and having my own voice and that started at fig i would say where i was operating what we were calling a a seasonal bistro so it still had that that french tie-in uh, but really, seasonality is what drove the the menu. Um, you know, in California, we are tied into you know such great producers, uh, proximity to the ocean, et cetera, et cetera. That I think we get some of the best ingredients um, in the country, if not the world. And so, really, the the shift focused the the focus shifted rather from a per- particular type of cuisine. Um, or you know, ingredient lexicon into looking at an ingredient and you know seeing how to best kind of manipulate and express that. Great, and and now I think it's the right time to talk about broken Spanish and how that that came about and and setting it all up because uh, it was I guess a new chapter in in your career. 
Yes, broken Spanish was a big change for for me professionally. Um, when I took my first trip to to Europe, and that was probably about at least a decade after I had been cooking, uh, I sort of came to the realization that what I was doing there was no context to it personally because I was learning these I was learning these recipes, and although in in my mind they were French or the experience was sort of French, actually going to France and having these dishes, you know, in the region where they're supposed to be consumed, the way they're supposed to be presented in the environment. It's like, oh, wow, we're, we're not, we're doing it all wrong. Like this is terrible how we've Americanized like this amazing experience for, for speed and convenience and profit and, and everything else. And so it kind of, shook me a little bit and said, okay, this is, I need to start creating a bit of my own context. I, 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 if I don't have, um, you know, relatable experiences to French cuisine, then what can I relate to? What moments, what experiences, what history, what culture? And that was that of, of my own, of, of Mexican and, and Mexican American heritage. So I started looking to ingredients that I knew, you know, and we're familiar with growing up and techniques and, you know, different, I guess, really emotions is what it, what it came down to that I could connect with. You know, when I had a bite of something, you know, it would, I would remember, oh, my grandmother used to make something that tasted similar to this, or I would go to a friend's house after school and this would remind me of a dish that his mom had. So now there was some sort of reference and context for, for my food, which inspired, you know, a lot more passion in my, in my cooking. Um, and so that's when I said, well, it's time to, to sort of break away and start my own restaurant. Um, I knew I wanted to do Mexican food. You know, if it wasn't a podcast, you could probably see air quotes of, you know, sort of me Mexican food for whatever that meant. And, um, I said, okay, let's first step is leave your current job, like on the checklist, you know, leave your current job. And then second was, uh, you know, find a, find a place to open up the restaurant. So my partner and I, we found a location and then we said, okay, we're going to, we're going to actually do this now. Uh, you know, what does that, what does that mean? Because Mexican food, you know, Italian food, any sort of cuisine can, can range. There's not, you know, 10 dishes that represent a country or a, or a culture or a history. Um, and so we're like, well, Let's see, how does, we knew what we didn't want to be, you know, we knew how Mexican food, even in a, in a city like Los Angeles was such a, a, a history and heritage and, and culture, you know, connected to Mexico. And it was, it was a very limited expression of, of Mexican food. And so we knew we wanted to be more than, you know, that plate that's certainly a place that served a plate of, you know, rice and beans and something with cheese melted all over the top. And, and, you know, we could, we could do much better than that. We wanted to do much better than that. And that's when we came up with broken Spanish, which I, I feel is sort of, you know, not, not only a, a fair representation of, you know, myself as a, you know, Mexican American whose, you know, first language was Spanish, you know, went to school, started losing that, shifted over to English, and now, you know, have lost, you know, a good portion of that kind of you know, native tongue of, of mine. Um, but also in the, in the cuisine as well is sort of noting that it's, it's going to be authentically inauthentic. It's going to be a, a representation of 
Mexican food as seen through a lens, through the lens of a, a second generation Angelino, um, as seen through the lens of a professionally and classically trained chef, you know, as seen through the lens of, you know, having a team full of people whose backgrounds are, are different than mine and being a chef who listened to and embraced that and wanted to include them in the, you know, in, in making a dynamic restaurant as opposed to, you know, other chefs that I'd worked for, whereas like, if it wasn't their idea, if it wasn't their recipe, then it wasn't going to be on the menu. And I think that broken Spanish is sort of a, a culmination of, of all of that coming together. And, and Ray, you mentioned before ingredients and, and what you can do with it and the amazing seasonality that you have where you're based, uh, which is Los Angeles. So uh, uh, tell me a bit about the menu of Broken Spanish. What, what became your signature dishes? What, what brought you back to those childhood memories and, and, and things that you had tasted and, and had, had all these emotions tied to it? Sure. So at Broken Spanish, the, the menu sort of reflected, you know, both some of these childhood experiences and memories, um, but did so in a way that was nostalgic, but still looking to be innovative and, you know, make improvements because I, I know that there were dishes that my, my, my grandmother would, would cook for me, which, you know, had so much love and, you know, care and, you know, compassion and all these other feelings that went into it for, for me. But also the reality is I knew I had access to much better produce, you know, much better grains, much better ingredients, a better meat. And so it was like, okay, how do I capture the, you know, that love and that warmth and sincerity of a home cooked meal, but do so using, um, better ingredients. And that's what we did when we did some of our tamales, when we started off, and we've had a tamal on the menu since day one, because for, for me, you know, it feels very homey. It reminds me of the holidays. It reminds me of, you know, a time where my family would all get together from my grandparents to, you know, my aunts, uncles, parents, cousins, everyone would come together and we'd make tamales as a, as a family. And we would, we would do so everyone have their own uh, job and some people would just be like me, like counting the ojas, counting the leaves, you know, or laying them out. Others would have, you know, more serious uh, jobs of actually making the sauces, cooking the meat, but we'd still all come together as, as one. So when you look at broken Spanish, we have tamales on the menu and it's, it's, there's a connection for, for me and many because it's not a, a foreign item or ingredient. But when you taste it, you taste the fact that we've you know, sourced our corn and it's an heirloom land race corn coming from Oaxaca. And we're, we're, you know, we have a relationship with the, the people who are, are bringing it over for us. We take it, we cook the corn in-house, we grind it in-house. We are able to kind of manipulate this amazing product. Um, to how we want, as opposed to just receiving, you know, finished masa from a, from a store and, and making that. So there's, there's a number of signature dishes from, from broken Spanish that sort of start with that idea of cultural connection. Um, and then we take it from there. A current iteration of a tamal has, um, this squash called uh, nine, eight squash from a very famous, um, uh, row seven. Um, seed breeder 
And, you know, it is, he's been breeding this, this squash for, he started with Dan Barber and, you know, and now it's a little bit more available and it's a squash that sort of goes in the opposite way of commercial American production in that it's, it's, it's smaller, it's more dense, it's nutrient rich, it has more flavor, you know, and that's what we're using as a filling inside of our tamal. So that's sort of where the, the two kind of intersect. Wonderful. And, and I think, Ray, you, you mentioned this, this uh, word, uh, or pair of words, cultural connection, which I think is a great segue uh, to your uh, current pop-up that you're doing with, uh, with Neue House. So uh, tell me, how did the collaboration come about? Because obviously 2020 hit um, a lot of uh, restaurants uh, were, were, in, were in trouble. So tell me about your journey. Sure. So with the pandemic, unfortunately, we had to close Broken Spanish, um, the, the flagship in downtown. Um, I mean, there's a number of factors that, w- that went into it, which I won't you know, bore you with, but it, we ended up having to, to shut down, but also knowing that we weren't done with it. You know, that, that Broken Spanish had just sort of hit its stride. It was, it was five years in the making, or, or sorry, five years running. Um, we had a lot of support in the community, um, both with sort of the, the, the foodies and, and, and just people in the, in the neighborhood. So myself, my chefs, um, all of our service uh, staff, we, we all knew that this wasn't going to be the end. Um, and so it was, I think the, the burden laid on my shoulders, but everyone was behind me to, okay, let's go find out what's next for, for broken Spanish because we're, we weren't, we weren't ready to, you know, sort of write the obituary to it and say it was a, it was a great restaurant and we're gonna, we're gonna miss it. And so in that search, I connected with, with Noya House and it just seemed to be a great fit. And for me, and I I believe for them as well, it wasn't just about brand alignments and sort of the overlap of our, our our communities and where we saw, you know, opportunity from a, a business standpoint to introduce each other to, you know, new, new potential, you know, clients or, or, or members, uh, it became about the human element of bringing people back to work. Um, but I think for me, it's important that, that, you know, work isn't just work, you know, it's, especially when you're in a, in a, in a restaurant, it's, it's your family, it's your friends, it's people you spend, you know, 10 to 16 hours a day with. And so it really comes down to seeing, you know, or being with like-minded people, you know, and knowing that the, the, the fundamentals of, of Noya House are based in, you know, creativity and innovation and conversation and sort of this, this open-minded approach. I mean, I think even the fact that they were considering bringing on a, a, a restaurant and kind of incorporating it into their, their normal pr- programming is is innovative in and of itself and so you know we started meeting the 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 actual players and this this really makes sense these people are are reaching out to us for the for the right reasons it's not just to you know try to you know well here's the financials and we take this and you take that and you know and and here are the rules of engagement you know it felt like a a true um partnership um and that's what we've always sought after at, at broken spanish from you know, our farmers to, you know, our fish suppliers to who brings our, our corn or who brings our cheese into the restaurant. 
And and tell me a bit more about the pop-up. So uh, it started on 25th February and was supposed to only last until end of March, but has now been extended. So I'm I'm sure it's because of it's it's been a great success. So tell me how it works. How many covers are you doing? What's the setup? Obviously, given all the uh, restrictions that uh, we have to deal with. So uh, tell me a bit about that. Sure. So we were actually supposed to start in December and then there was another round, at least here in Los Angeles, of the restaurants being shut down and, and there was not any sort of space that we could use to um, to showcase our food. So that got pushed till February. We started in, in the end of February and at that point the thought was we were going to give it a month to see how, how it went. Um, and we were going to open for three days for three days a week for a month. And we opened up the, the reservations and we were sold out of those 12 days almost Im- immediately. And we said, well, this is, that's, that's great. Um, and with, you know, COVID restrictions, we, we couldn't pack the restaurant. We, you know, it was important for us to make it feel like a, a safe environment for so many people. It was the first time they'd been out to a restaurant in, in almost a year. So we said, well, okay, how do we, how do we get more people to be able to try broken Spanish, get more people to experience Noya House, uh, but still in a safe and comfortable way. And I think the only way was to expand it. So we've opened up a, a fourth day. So now we're operating Wednesday through Saturday. Um, we extended through April and now we're actually extending through May um, with conversations of potentially, you know, something lo- even more long term. So, but you can still book now on, on Resi. If you're in Los Angeles, we do still have some availability in May. Great. And, and what sort of uh, menu are you doing? Are you doing the full uh, broken Spanish menu? Have you alternated somewhat? Have you brought in new dishes? Uh, what's the, what's the concept for Noya House Hollywood? So broken Spanish, the menu, it still feels very much like broken Spanish. But we we thought about it and we said, well, we don't want to come and open with exactly the same menu because, you know, yes, there are people who miss certain dishes. But I feel like after having some time away, some some clarity, some reflection, some creativity, you know, there was a lot in my in my notebook that I wanted to sort of introduce and get from paper to to plate. And so the the menu itself is about forty percent existing broken Spanish uh, items, maybe less, and 60 or more percent come from new new dishes. Uh, you know, we, we didn't want to change to the point where people, you know, our, our old friends would not recognize us anymore or feel like we'd become a different, a different person and then we don't know you after this year. Um, but we did want to just at least give some, some excitement for ourselves creatively to the team um, and also to guests who have even tried broken Spanish or it was their first time that, that both of them would feel satisfied. So we have the, the chicharron, which is one of our, our signature dishes from, from day one. Um, and then we have a, a new dish, which seems to be, you know, sort of taking off as the, as the, as the next kind of like signature dish, if you want to use that term, which is our, uh, hongos adobados, which are like a grilled, um, mushroom dish and, uh, and everything in between. 
Well, you're you're making me very hungry, chef. So it's uh, it's it's always uh, really really tempting to come and try these things, but it, this will have to wait for a bit because coming from London all the way to LA will will be will be a while, but but we'll get there. And and last last question to you uh, as we're as we're kind of rounding up our our discussion. Um, you said um, you re- refer to the you know you have a notebook there. You have ideas that you you've jotted down throughout the lockdown. Anything else that you're working on that you can. Tell us about what's what's in the pipeline. What's in your thoughts? Sure, I have a I have a new restaurant opening up in Las Vegas uh, this summer. So end of June, beginning of July. It's called Viva. Um, it's in a hotel, uh, so it's at uh, Resorts World, uh, the the newest build in in Las Vegas, sort of the north end of the Strip, across from the new convention center. So um, we are very excited about that. Um, it is sort of a shared culinary DNA with, with broken Spanish, but in its own kind of unique, lively environment. Wonderful. Well, uh, I wish you great luck with, um, with the opening of the new restaurant, as well as the continuation with uh, the pop-up at Neue House Hollywood. And thank you again uh, so much for, for joining us, uh, Ray, for this, for this first podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Supper 2021, a series of conversations with culinary leaders, drink specialists and hospitality professionals in the world of F&B.